1 Corinthians 1, 18 to chapter 2, verse 5. So I have a question to start us out with. When was the last time you played King of the Mountain? It's been a while, maybe. You know that game where you find a dirt pile or you find a snow pile, and the person who gets to the top first is king of the mountain, but then they have to defend their position, right? And everyone else keeps trying to get up and to knock them off and to take their place at the top. And it's a beautiful analogy for the way the world works. Life in this world is in a lot of ways kind of like a big game of king of the mountain. Not that everyone plays it. Some people stand around and they watch. But most people understand that getting to the top is the point of life. Of course, culture to culture, age to age, we might define what the top is somewhat differently. Uh, for some, it's making a lot of money or getting the best job position so that we can afford a nice house in a place like Westchester County and send our kids to the best schools so that they can get into the best colleges so that they can make money and get good jobs in places like Westchester County. For others, especially if you're younger, maybe getting to the top means being popular in school, having the right friends, being in the right activities. Or maybe it means having the most followers on Instagram or TikTok. Or if you're intellectual, maybe it's about getting published in the right journals and being someone who's respected by your colleagues and having your work cited by experts in your field. Well, for the Corinthians, the, the people of ancient Corinth that Paul was writing to in the letter of 1 Corinthians that we're looking at, what getting to the top looked like for them was gaining honor and status. Having all the leading families in Corinth look at you and your family with respect and admiration. And maybe having a statue, a bust of yourself, erected in town square to immortalize your name forever. You know, in that culture, part of the way that you accomplished this was by accumulating a following of clients. Clients were people in that, of lower, in that time of, of lower social classes who had less money, less connections, less means than you did, who literally assembled at your door every morning to sing your praises. Literally. <laughs> These would maybe be former slaves who you had set free or people in need who you had loaned or given money to or people in legal trouble who you had used your power and connections to defend and help out. And there were names for these roles. Like I said, they were called your clients and you were their patron. And it was your job to take care of them and their job to be faithful to you and to sing your praises, to increase your honor and your standing in the community. That's the way the world worked back then. Another way you could increase your honor in a place like Corinth was by eloquent speaking or by gaining a reputation for great wisdom. <clears throat> if you went that route, you could become a teacher. And wealthy families would pay a lot of money to, for you to tutor their kids. And so you could parade around town 
with a following of students from high-class families who were hanging on your every word, and then you were someone really important. You were at the top of the mountain. And what was valued in that day in terms of education wasn't STEM subjects or uh, law degrees or medical degrees. Rather, it was philosophy and rhetoric, wisdom and eloquence. Uh, rhetoric in particular is interesting. In that day, there were no movie theaters or TVs or smartphones. So one of the things people would do for entertainment was they would listen to great speeches. And, and certain people were so eloquent, they could move a crowd by their emotion or with, with their emotion. And, and they could make you laugh or they could make you cry. And, and they studied how to do this. They studied how to stand, how to... Strike a pose, actually. And how to speak and how to tell a story or drive home a point and how to inflect your voice. And so rhetoric, eloquence, and philosophy, wisdom, were major ways in that Greek culture that people gained honor and gained status. In the great game of King of the Mountain, in the city of Corinth, those were major ways that people got to the top. Or if you couldn't play that game yourself, then you rooted for people who did. And you had your favorite. They were your heroes. They were the people you looked up to and honored. Well, into that situation comes what we know or understand from tradition to be a short, bandy-legged Jewish guy with a hook nose named Paul. He wasn't much to look at, evidently. In fact, he'd been beat up so many times. He had scars. His body was literally deformed. He was not handsome. He was far from an ideal masculine specimen. He was an adequate speaker, but he was no rhetorician. And so he was no hero in terms of his eloquence. And he reminisces back in chapter 2. I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. But nonetheless, Paul comes to Corinth and he starts speaking and he gathers a crowd and he delivers an address. And his message is this. The whole world is changing. God has done something brand new in the world that changes everything. And God did it by sending a guy named Jesus, who we call Christ. We talked about this last week. Jesus was more or less a barbarian from a Greek perspective. That's probably how those in Corinth would have viewed him. Because he's from some out-of-the-way, uncivilized, unimportant place part of the, the barbaric peoples on the fringe of the empire that Rome had conquered, a loser people, a backwards people. And what had Jesus accomplished to, to make him worthy of anyone's attention all the way off in the great city of Corinth? Well, he had not started a school of philosophy or rhetoric. He hadn't funded any great buildings. He wasn't from a leading family. No, what Jesus had done was gotten himself crucified. Which was such a horrid, terrible fate that it was never even talked about in polite company. 
Crucifixion was foul. It was nasty. It was indecent. Just like you don't go uh, to a fancy dinner party and talk about your bathroom habits. So most people did not even talk about crucifixion. Only slaves and traitors got crucified. Not important people, not worthy people, not even regular people. But Jesus got crucified. And here is Paul claiming that God was going to, or was using this Jesus who got crucified to remake the world, to change the world, to transform the world. And that God has made Jesus king of the mountain. King of the whole world by raising him from the dead. And if you don't accept Jesus as king and give your life to him and put your trust in him and let yourself become weak like him and give up your quest for power and status, then you can't be saved and you don't know God. Well, let me ask you, how do you think the rich and powerful, the important people in a place like Corinth would view this message? Well, that's what today's passage is about. Because the Corinthians are still playing the old game of King of the Mountain. They're still celebrating and idolizing those who are wise, who are smart, who are educated, and those who are eloquent. And it's leading to disunity and strife, as the game always does. The Corinthians are disunited with each other. They're gathering around different heroes, whoever they they think is the most wise or the most eloquent. We saw this last week. Apollo, Cephas, Paul, Christ. And many of the Corinthians are also critical and contemptuous of Paul because he's not much of a hero. He's weak. He's unattractive. He's embarrassing. He's not particularly wise or eloquent by their standards. So what kind of teacher is he? So Paul writes the Corinthians a letter, and we we ended last Sunday looking at the first part of the letter, ending in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And now Paul's going to elaborate on this gospel, this good news of Jesus that he preached, that it's not wise, at least not from the world's perspective. It's not anything that the learned ones, the philosophers of that day could appreciate. And Paul didn't deliver it with eloquence, not in a way that would get the rhetoricians excited. No, Paul's ministry, the way he came across, was intentionally matched to his message. And Paul's message was about a cross and about crucifixion. And so he continues now in verse 18 of our letter. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. To the world who are playing the game of king of the mountain, the idea of a crucified king is utter foolishness. Because a crucified king... A crucified king is a contradiction in terms. A king who's not at the top of the mountain, that's not a king. Kings are at the top. A king who's been thrown down to the bottom, 
who's a loser, who died in utter shame with no honor and no status? What kind of a king is that? That's backwards. That's upside down. That's foolishness. And yet Paul says, here's the mystery and here's the surprise. That's exactly the way God has chosen to express his power in the world. To us who are being saved, that is the power of God. God has chosen to cloak his power to save the world, to cloak it in the cross of Jesus Christ and many other unassuming acts of sacrificial love by we who follow in the way of the cross. Acts like above all the one Jesus gave us when he died for us on the cross. Verse 19, God says, and here Paul's quoting the prophet Isaiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? God chose to reveal himself by, by, by something utterly foolish. God chose to save the world by something utterly foolish. A cross. Something weak, something unexpected, something utterly offensive to polite, refined sensibilities. In the great game of King of the Mountain, God chose to turn the whole mountain upside down. Why? Why would God do that? Why didn't God make it easier for us? More attractive, more logical, easier to understand. Why did God choose to reveal himself to offer his salvation in a way that makes so little sense, in a way that's so hard for people to accept or to understand? Verse 27, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Why? So that no one may boast before God. So no one can boast that they're at the top of the mountain in the world's great game of king of the mountain. Or even so no one can boast that they're a fan of whoever's at the top of the mountain and they picked the right horse. Because the game of king of the mountain is the problem. The fact that we view people and we treat people based on how high they climb is a huge problem. Just look at our world, right? Look at the trouble that we're in. And for the Corinthians, it was a problem in their fellowship, in their church community, because they were still trying to climb to the top to seek honor and status and to be better than each other. And they were celebrating those who succeeded and disdaining those who failed. And in the process, just read, skip ahead and read chapter 11, 
Some were getting overlooked and trampled on in the church. And read chapter, I think it's five or six. They were taking each other to court. And Paul addresses all this later in the letter and he says, you claim to follow Jesus and you're acting like this? This isn't God's way. This isn't Jesus' way. This is the very thing Jesus came to save us from and to teach us another way, a different way. And so in sending us Jesus, God said, I'm not playing that game. That the game of King of the Mountain is a big part of the problem. So the only way you're going to recognize me and the only way you're going to join me in my salvation is if you give up the game, if you repent of the game. That's why Paul says in 2, chapter 2, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Crucifixion, that's the heart of salvation. That's what God most wants us to know about Him. And it's the greatest picture God gives us of how he wants us to treat each other. Laying down our lives in love for each other. There's a movie that Ann and I like a lot called Sky High. And uh, it's about a high school of, of, for superheroes. And uh, when you first arrive, your first year, you get tested to see what your powers are. And uh, based on that, everyone gets sorted into two tracks. There's the superhero track, and then there's the sidekick track. <laughs> and superheroes, of course, are the cool kids, the, 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 the popular kids, the kids with the impressive powers. And the sidekicks, not so much. They're the, you know, in, in the teen world, they're the losers. They're the ones whose powers are, are not very impressive. And everyone knows, you know, though you would never use those words, that th those are the kids who, yeah, just are, are not that much. Well, this one boy is going through adolescence, and, and he's having a crisis because his parents are both famous superheroes, but he hasn't gotten his powers yet, which, of course, he has not told his parents about because that's so embarrassing. But he goes to school on the first day to sky high now that he's in ninth grade, and he fails the sorting test and winds up in the sidekick track. And he's devastated and he doesn't know how he's going to go home and tell his parents they're going to be so disappointed. Well, he's got a good friend and she has impressive superpowers. But actually, when she takes the test, she refuses to use her powers, even though she has great powers. And so she winds up in the sidekick track too. And he's like, why? Why didn't you use your powers? You could have been a superhero. You're, you're awesome. You're great. And she's like, no way. The whole thing's stupid. <laughs> Sorting people into groups based on powers? That's dumb. I wasn't going to play that dumb game. And that's exactly what God says. It's dumb. I'm not going to play that game. And if people insist on judging me based on that game, then they're going to miss me. And they're going to overlook my salvation. But my children will get it. Those who are being saved. They'll get the way of the cross. 
and they'll embrace it. They'll realize that life is not about climbing to the top, not trying to be better than others, and not looking up to or idolizing or celebrating those who do. But rather, they'll realize that life is about laying down our lives to serve one another in love. Realizing that, that my power, God says, my power to change the world is cloaked in unassuming acts of love like it was on the cross and like it is for those who follow in the way of the cross and the Savior who died on the cross. And so here's what Paul wants us to know about the cross. The cross is, is much more than that Jesus has paid the price for our sins so that we can be forgiven and not punished by God when we die. It is all of that. Praise God. And also, it's much more than that. The cross is also an absolute scandal of weakness, of foolishness, of God turning the whole game of king of the mountain, of everyone trying to get to the top, God turning it upside down of God revealing himself to us through weakness and foolishness. And if you're not willing to accept and worship a God like that and to imitate him, then you're not ready to be a Christian. Gordon Fee, who's written one of the, the best commentaries on 1 Corinthians, puts it this way. I'm not quote, quoting him, but I'm paraphrasing. He says, the cross is, is the scandal of our faith even more than it's the symbol of our faith. And maybe when we made it the symbol of our faith and we gilded it in gold and we prettied it up and we began to, or, or when we did that, maybe we began to miss the absolute scandal that it is that was totally evident to Jesus and to Paul and to the apostles and everyone in the first century before the church turned it into something gold and gilded with jewelry. And, and maybe when we turned it into that symbol, maybe we we, that was when we started to get off track. Incidentally, like evangelicalism in America, by and large, is getting off track today. Because we've forgotten the heart of our faith. And we've started joining the world again in their great game of King of the Mountain. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. That's why they were experiencing conflict and divisions. And that's why they were turning against Paul and they were turning up their noses at him. And it's because he was an authentic embodiment of the cross and all it represented. And Paul's trying to get them back to, to return them to the heart of it all, which, which is that God's most important word to all of us is a crucified king. A king of the mountain who's gotten thrown down off the mountain to land on his neck. And, and he's been mocked and he's been ridiculed and he's been utterly abused and God says, that's the way to real wisdom. That's the way to know me. That's the posture that it takes to participate in the salvation of the world. Want to be saved? Repent, turn around, change, 
and follow and put your faith in Jesus in that way, in the way of the cross, in a Jesus who was crucified and who then calls us to take up our crosses and follow in the way of the cross. Chapter 2, verse 5, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. What's the power of the cross? It's not that the cross makes sense or that it's respectable to the world. It's that when we put our faith in the one who died on the cross, we experience God's power in our lives. We find ourselves transformed. We find our heart being changed. We find ourselves starting to love. And we begin to embrace and celebrate lots of little unassuming acts of love. Let me end with another superhero story. This one's from the movie Captain America. Ann and I like sky high. The kids like Captain America. <laughs> In the movie, a, a top scientist has developed a super serum that can turn an ordinary person into a superhero. And the serum does it by enhancing all of the individual's natural qualities, enhancing them, boosting them significantly. And so when it's time to, to put the serum to work, wisely, the scientist does not go searching for a powerful person, but rather for a good person. A world war is raging, and the army is, is pressing the scientists to use the serum on one of their best and their brightest. But the scientist resists, and he chooses eventually instead Steve Rogers, a scrawny runt who failed his physical to join the army. Why? Because the scientist realizes about all those other proposed candidates that, that someone who's, who's used to using their natural powers to win and, and is not used to fighting the temptation to abuse their powers by bullying others, someone like that is going to be an incredible menace if all of that is enhanced. But on the other hand, someone like scrawny Steve who's compassionate, who's used to being weak, will have those character qualities enhanced to, to temper his temptation to misuse his newfound power. And so Steve Rogers, a no-named runt from Brooklyn, I believe, who flunked his physical, becomes Captain America, and proves to indeed have the character to steward his newfound strength. And this is the same sort of thinking that God employs. And it's the thinking God employed in choosing to use a crucified victim to save the world and to be king of the world. Someone who was willing to lay down his life in love for the sake of others. And of course, because God couldn't find anyone like that, he said, well, that's my heart. I'll come and do it myself. Not by using his power, but by acting in the ultimate act of unassuming sacrificial love, which is God's heart. And that's the same wisdom that God employed in telling all who would follow the crucified one to take up our crosses as well and to be servants 
of others. So question for you and me, can you see the wisdom? Can we see the wisdom in the cross? Can we see the power in the cross? And if so, are we willing to live a life that celebrates and that aspires to many unassuming acts of love? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And thank you for what Paul is jumping up and down about in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. Urging us to see the hidden wisdom in something that seems to all of us on the surface of things to be utterly foolish. I pray we would grasp it with our minds and then that even more we would begin, even more than we have already, to embrace it with our hearts so that we would have the heart of Jesus and could be part of his good news that he wants to share with the world. Amen.